You are tuned to KVMR, FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's time for the KVMR Evening News for Friday, January 1st, 2021. For their support, we'd like to thank Circle's Wild and Scenic Film Festival, online January 14th through the 24th, a virtual experience this year with over 100 environmental and adventure films, filmmakers, activists, workshops, and more. WildandScenicFilmFestival.org. Well, coming up, after we take a look at our local headlines and weather, we'll give you NPR national news. Then we're going to talk with Amy Irani, the director of the Nevada County Environmental Health Department, about the current status of businesses and restaurants during our county's stay-at-home order. After that, the Public News Service reports on groups demanding cancellation of federal student loan debt. Coming up at 6.30 this evening, it's the California Report, and at 7 o'clock we bring you Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. I'm Felton Pruitt. Now here are today's news headlines. Dr. Scott Kellerman officially began serving as Nevada County's new public health officer today. His contract will be formally coming before the Board of Supervisors at the January 12th meeting. Dr. Kellerman has decades of experience as a local doctor and is the founder of the Kellerman Foundation, which provides health care services, education, and community development in rural Uganda. Dr. Kellerman has a public health background and a deep connection in and a commitment to Nevada County. Dr. Kellerman replaces Dr. Richard Johnson, who has served as Nevada County's interim public health officer since June. Nevada County Public Health Director Jill Blake said that Dr. Kellerman's deep community roots and breadth of experience as an MD will serve the county well. We look forward to this next chapter, bringing Dr. Kellerman on as our health officer alongside Deputy Dr. Gleneth Trochet as we work to provide a safe and equitable COVID vaccine process to Nevada County residents. California is updating the latest COVID-19 numbers. The greater Sacramento region, which includes Nevada County, has been eligible to exit the stay-at-home order as early as tomorrow, January 2nd, but with the expected ICU capacity to be under the 15% threshold that the state uses, the stay-at-home order will likely be extended based on early ICU projections. If Nevada County continues with the stay-at-home order, it will be announced Saturday. Nevada County is hosting a COVID-19 business task force meeting at 3 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, January 6. You can register on Zoom at mynevadacounty.com slash COVID-19 business task force. The California Small Business COVID-19 grant relief opened on December 30th and will close on January 8th at 11.59 p.m. The Small Business Development Center will provide a daily webinar at 11 a.m. through January 4th. Webinar topics will include updates to the program, including eligibility requirements, application process, required documents, and who to contact for assistance. Registering for an upcoming small business grant webinar on the SBDC's website, you can go to sierrasbdc.com slash events slash State of California COVID-19 Business Grant Webinar. CBS reports that the second round of stimulus checks may soon start arriving in bank accounts after President Trump signed the $900 billion stimulus bill. The last-minute signing was a welcome development for the 6 in 10 people who have suffered a financial setback due to the pandemic. But millions of people may find themselves in for a disappointment if they are among the groups who don't qualify for the payment. It's most likely that the checks will amount to $600 for each adult and child, or half the amount, of the $1,200 checks sent out earlier this year. The $600 per person payments are part of the stimulus bill passed by Congress in December 
and signed by Trump on the evening of December 27th. Still, the President and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have called for lawmakers to boost the amount to $2,000 per adult, a request that Wall Street analysts say has a slim chance of moving forward, considering the additional hundreds of billions of dollars such a raise in the amount would cost. In crafting the latest stimulus bill, lawmakers have sought to rectify a few issues that restricted payment of the first stimulus checks earlier this year. For instance, distribution of the second stimulus checks will include so-called mixed-status immigrant families, or families where American citizens are married to immigrants without green cards, a group that was blocked from receiving the checks earlier this year. Children under 17 years old will receive the same $600 payment as adults, compared to the $500 in the first round. The union reports that for the second straight week, Nevada County slightly improved its COVID-19 risk level assessment. State public health data released on Tuesday showed Nevada County's case rate dropped to 30.5 new cases per day from 35 the week before, and its positivity rate decreased to 0.6% from the previous week of 8.2%. And its positivity rate decreased 0.6% from the previous week to 8.2%. The state data uses a seven-day average and a two-week delay, meaning the latest figures are for the week starting December 13th, and do not include stats from the recent holidays. Nevada County's coronavirus risk level indicators had been on the rise since October, with notable spikes in the weeks after Halloween and Thanksgiving. The county's risk assessment hit a high the week following Thanksgiving, starting on November 29th, when its case rate received 54 new cases per day and the positivity rate grew to 11%. Two weeks following that peak, the county saw the most deaths it had in a single week, with 18 in the week beginning on December 13th. As of Tuesday, regional capacity was at 17.4% in the ICUs. Of the 244 beds being made available for use at the Arco Sleep Train Arena Alternative Care Site, 20 were active and 13 in use. The weather forecast for Grass Valley in Nevada City is calling for cloudy skies this evening with lows in the low 40s. On Saturday, cloudy with a slight chance of a rain shower with highs in the upper 40s. On Saturday night, overcast with lows in the low 40s, and on Sunday in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, mostly cloudy with highs in the low 50s. In the Sacramento region, tonight cloudy with lows in the low 40s. On Saturday, cloudy with a slight chance of rain showers with highs in the mid-50s. Saturday night, cloudy with lows in the mid-40s. And on Sunday in the Sacramento area, mostly cloudy with highs in the low 60s. In Truckee, tonight cloudy with lows in the mid-20s. Saturday, cloudy with highs near 40. Saturday night, cloudy with lows in the mid-20s. And on Sunday in the Truckee region, mostly cloudy with highs in the low 40s. In Angels Camp this evening, cloudy skies with lows around 40. On Saturday, cloudy with highs in the mid-50s. Saturday night, cloudy with lows in the mid-40s. And on Sunday in Angels Camp, mostly cloudy with highs around 60. That's the KVMR Evening News Headlines. I'm Felton Pruitt. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Republican-led Senate has handed Donald Trump the first veto defeat of his presidency just weeks before he's scheduled to leave office. NPR's Kelsey Snell reports lawmakers voted today to override his veto of the massive annual defense bill. 
Trump vetoed the bill in a fight over something completely unrelated. That's a piece of decades-old law that involves liability protections that social media companies use to avoid lawsuits over content shared on their platforms. You know, Republicans were just not willing to join Trump on this fight, particularly over this defense bill, and they abandoned him on it. This is the first veto override of his presidency, and it happened with an absolutely huge margin. NPR's Kelsey Snell reporting the House had already voted overwhelmingly this week to override the veto. Congress has restored Medicaid to Pacific Islanders legally residing in the U.S. under a military and economic treaty. As Jacqueline Froelich with member station KUAF reports, the entitlement has been unavailable to these legal immigrants for decades. Over 100,000 migrants from the Federated States of Micronesia, Palau, and the Marshall Islands live in the U.S., and Marshallese Council General Eldon Alec says many cannot afford insurance. I think it's just very fortunate that the U.S. government has now reinstated our Medicaid because, you know, uh, we don't want any more people to die. COVID-19 surged through northwest Arkansas last year, home to 12,000 Marshallese who experienced cases at a rate of 400 percent higher than in the general population. For NPR News, I'm Jacqueline Froelich in Fayetteville. After years in the making, the United Kingdom's divorce from the European Union is final. NPR's Frank Langford has more from the English port of Dover. After a decade of practically seamless trade here across the English Channel, truckers will have to have new customs forms, among others, which will cost British businesses $10 billion a year in extra administration. That's just one way leaving the EU will impact the British economy. But a new trade deal between the UK and EU, agreed to on Christmas Eve, will avoid tariffs and quotas on most products flowing across the water here. Still, the UK government has warned of disruptions, which is one reason why traffic is remarkably light, even for a New Year's Day. Some freight companies say they're holding off sending their trucks until they have a better sense of how the new systems will work. Frank Lankford, NPR News, the Port of Dover. More than a dozen states are raising their minimum wage rates. The increases range from a few cents an hour to a dollar or more. They're part of an effort to adjust for cost of living gains and move toward a $15 an hour minimum pay rate. The federal minimum wage of $7.25 per hour hasn't budged since 2009. This is NPR. The coronavirus pandemic devastated the film industry in 2020. Many movie theaters were forced to close for months to curb the spread of the virus. NPR's Bob Mondello reports ticket sales at the box office last year were the lowest that they've been in decades. The start of 2020 looked great for Hollywood, with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence setting a near-record pace with their comedy sequel, Bad Boys for Life. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do? Hey, uh-uh, no! Y'all will never do that again. That turned out to be the year's high point. By mid-March, the pandemic had shut down cinemas almost entirely, and though some have reopened, North American box office finished down more than 80% from last year. Big films like Tenet and Wonder Woman 84 have done a fraction of what was expected, and studios postponed other titles, including a new James Bond. With a COVID vaccine now being distributed, industry observers expect 2021 to rebound, its timeline packed not just with its own potential blockbusters, but also with ones delayed from last year. Bob Mandelo, NPR News. 
Prosecutors in the case against the four Minneapolis police officers charged in the death of George Floyd are asking a judge to postpone the trial date. They say they want to wait until the vaccines for COVID-19 become more widely available to members of the public. The trials are scheduled to begin March 8th. Prosecutors are seeking to put them off until the beginning of June. I'm Windsor Johnston, and you're listening to NPR News in Washington. You are tuned to the KVMR Evening News. We're talking with Amy Irani, the Director of the Environmental Health Department for Nevada County. Thank you for joining us, Amy. Oh, thank you, Felton. Always a pleasure. So we talked a lot back in uh, 2020. It's kind of nice to be able to say back in 2020 as we move into the first day of 2021. And we have, unfortunately, nothing's really changed. It looks like the greater Sacramento region, which Nevada County is in, is still under the 15% ICU capacity, which means that then falls directly back into your area and how it affects local businesses and restaurants. Sure. You know, there's all kinds of predictions right now, but one thing I know that our public health department, they continue to do a fantastic job, but they meet on a weekly basis with their counterparts at the state. And I'm sure that there will be a a pending update, but these are things that I definitely will know about come the following work week once we all get back and begin 2021 with with a big push. So at this point right now, give people an idea of exactly where we stand as far as we're in, what is the the worst level there is right now? Right now, I mean, just blanket of what situation we're in, we're in the the stay-at-home order is still in play. So it's definitely please continue to take every precaution. Avoid big family gatherings where you're not in, you know, you haven't seen these people for a while and all of a sudden you all... Uh, get together, that can easily spread the virus if someone is maybe asymptomatic. And then again, just take your precautions when you're out. Do your best to stay home. Do your best to protect yourself and your loved ones because it is about you, but it's also about your fellow citizen and other members of the public. So just, just taking those precautions and being safe during celebrations and then coming in the new year, I hope we don't see another surge. Right now, we st- where we stand is restaurants and bars are closed. They cannot serve indoor or outdoor, and businesses are at, what, 25% capacity right now? Yes, that's you, you are correct. For restaurants, for those out there that have been doing great work all last year and then, then moving forward to go, you know, curbside delivery, those options are still available, but absolutely no indoor dining and no outdoor dining on a patio or what have you. And unfortunately, it looks like we're going to do that for probably another three weeks, and who knows how much longer after that. Yeah, you're correct, Felton. I mean, it's. I would love to say there's an end date, but I don't know that, that anyone has, you know, that kind of prediction or ability to make that call. Now, I had heard something about something called platform kitchens. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? You bet. So, you remember last year we did the TFF car hop, and that was really great. It, it was really nice to do something for our temporary food facility operators that weren't able to participate in, you know, like the fair or other activities that we normally would do throughout the year, special events. And in talking with some of them, you know, they really have a desire to showcase their culinary skills, but 
don't have the financial capital to branch out and, say, open their own facility or even buy a mobile food facility. Those things are very expensive. The idea here is that you would have an individual, um, such as a temporary food facility operator, would coordinate with an existing commissary facility or an existing restaurant that then converts and becomes kind of a commissary platform kitchen. And the, the temporary operator or temporary food facility owner would come in to that facility when the regular restaurant business is not operating. So let's say Amy's restaurant is open from 6.30 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon. The platform kitchen then, the individual could come in, say, at 4 o'clock when the actual restaurant shuts down, and then they can use the facility to prepare their products and do it a point of sale where people can come and pick up their food to go. It wouldn't be a sit-down operation. It would just be strictly to go, and we could even include delivery. But then you've got folks that could actually experience a different culinary flair out of an existing restaurant, and they wouldn't have to put forth the capital. So I'm pretty excited. We're going to be pushing out some information. Staff and I are working on the, the packages now, but we'll have a complete package of how that looks and then be willing to, you know, help operators that currently have a facility, how that's going to work for them, and then help our our temporary food facility operators figure out how they can make this work for them. So I'm hoping that uh, it's a positive. We have a lot of restauranters right now, of course, closed, hurting, uh, laying off people. What kind of financial support is Nevada County providing at this point? I know that there were some additional funding that could be available. We had the CARES, the monies come in from that, and I think there are other business-type fundings, which we have a great COVID business task force meeting where a lot of that information is shared. It's a Zoom meeting held by Caleb Dardick. From our perspective, from environmental health, we really, I don't have a, a big give, but what we were able to do, which I was I was excited about, was to waive permit fees for this year for our food facilities. Okay. And um, I hoped, my hope was to provide some relief from last year. In listening to our governor speak of the, of the hardships, and then again at a federal level, hoping that money is filtered down, because I think that, that everyone recognizes the true disastrous effect this has had on businesses and families that, you know, survive from the business. So, I imagine we're going to see more support come down, hopefully federally through the state and then to the local county. We are talking with Amy Irani, the Director of Environmental Health for Nevada County here on the KVMR Evening News. So basically, we're not going to be able to go out and have a nice dinner at a restaurant for quite a while, it looks like, at least for another three weeks and maybe through all of January. Are there any other ideas that the Department of Health has come up to try and just help these businesses? We keep working. There are often suggestions and ideas to try to create open spaces, to create other things. But the main thing is to ensure that we're not, you know, we're not branching out into something that inadvertently causes more harm than benefit based on, you know, our social distancing and our requirements to protect ourselves and our fellow person. So it really is, you know, one of those things where we're working collaboratively with our city counterparts and and our Chamber of Commerce folks. And as ideas or suggestions come in, the county is always open to to reviewing and seeing how we can be be a support and a collaborator with them. 
Now, we just got a new health officer for Nevada County. Dr. Scott Kellerman is coming in now. You guys get your marching orders. They come down from there, from the Department of Health first, right? So for environmental health, in in part, yes, you are correct. When you look at the California Retail Food Code, that truly has oversight at the state level from California Department of Public Health and the public health officer. So anytime environmental health essentially is the arm of that state public health branch, which we then take those regulations and then assist business owners in implementing them and hence through the permit process. In the county, whenever there is a significant public health issue like this pandemic, what the the public health office then can utilize environmental health as part of their boots on the ground. An example of that is, I, I don't know if you recall the We had some investigations into E. coli and and some other investigations that happened a few years ago. And and it's the same thing. They they kind of start at the public health level because our chief health officer is the one that would get the information and then declare a public health, you know, order or public health mandate and issue out, you know, recommendations to county personnel on what role we would play and how we could assist. So, yes, in part... All of those directives come from our chief health officer, but more importantly for environmental health, those orders come down when there is an incident that requires kind of an all-hands-on-deck, like a pandemic. Well, yeah, I remember us talking a couple, um, was it a couple years ago when there was the plume in the South Yuba, and we wanted to yeah. figure out where that was coming from and what whether it was going to be harmful or not. And, Correct. Yeah. yeah, and this is, what what usually happens is, in a situation like that, public health definitely is in the loop. When it comes to water, you also have to look at who is the jurisdictional governing body then. And all waters of the state are obviously overseen by the state water board. And so that's the major body that comes down and, and we take our kind of our direction from them. We have the situation and then we collaborate locally. Okay, we'll get some samples going. We'll see what we're looking at. And, of course, if there was E. coli or other human-type pathogens, we definitely would coordinate with public health on getting out messaging and how we could help our citizens stay safe. Have you looked at any data that shows that restaurants actually do contribute to the spread of uh, COVID-19? Because there are people on the other side that say, look, there's no evidence that say you can't, you can't just keep the restaurants open. That's a very, very valid point. And to do that type of traceback and to actually identify a specific facility would be uh, pretty laborious and very detailed. And at this point, or this juncture, I don't have any data in front of me, not saying it doesn't exist, but I don't have any data in front of me that clearly identifies a particular food facility that's tied to becoming a potential spreader or causing illness in several people. But it it was a factor that was determined by our state health officers that this is definitely an environment closed indoors, recirculating air that would be a potential to cause great harm. And so that's in looking at those like bars, you know, gyms, uh, fitness centers, things of that nature all kind of came under that scrutiny to see, okay, what is the true potential for spread? What should we be looking at? Should we be limiting this? And that's when the ultimate decision came down that, yes, in in the best interest in protecting public health, 
to limit people's exposure in, in those closed environments. And in those environments that you just mentioned, too, most of the time, no masks are being worn. I mean, if you're, gonna, if you're eating, you don't wear a mask. If you're drinking, you don't wear a mask. If you're exercising, you correct. probably are swimming, you don't wear a mask. So, <laughs> Right, you are correct. And, the, and that was the, you know, that's the kind of the deductive basis behind, you know, understanding it's a virus understanding that it's it's airborne, understanding there's human-to-human transmission. What are the preventative barriers we can put into play right now to do some type of cessation to limit the spread and keep our numbers low of any hospitalizations or those that are sick? When you took your job a few years ago, I bet you never thought you'd be in this position, but you're kind of like the breathing police. I mean, you have been tasked with going out there and keeping our community safe, and one of the ways to do that is to make sure people don't cluster and breathe on each other, basically. I have never viewed my role as a policing role, because um, I've, I've worked with other jurisdictions in other states where it has been. Environmental health and regulation has been very policing, and I firmly am a believer in having a collaborative relationship that regulations are in play based on science and science data and foodborne illness data and manufacturing. There's a reason these things are in play. And environmental health has only been out in the front because we do have food facilities. And and because of the mandate, you know, the food facilities were one of those facilities that we had permitted that we could actually communicate with the owner-operators directly and say, look, this is a, this is a public health issue and we really need your compliance. But you know, Felton, as you know, it is very controversial. It is a struggle. It is gut-wrenching to see your livelihood be affected because you have to shut down for something you can't see, touch, hear, feel. It's a virus, and that makes this very intangible for, for many people. As we get to our close of our conversation here, I just want to say thank you for staying on the job and, and not leaving. We now are on our third public health officer um, in the last year. And a lot of other people have uh, retired because um, it's just a stressful time to to be in a position, especially like yours. So uh, you are serving our community, and I just wanted to throw out that thanks. That's very kind of you, Felton, but it takes everybody, and I appreciate that. I mean, kudos, my hat's off, too, and great respect for every restaurant owner-operator out there that has done the right thing, that has towed the line, that has done everything they can in following the mandate. I have the utmost respect for them. They have truly a difficult job and have sacrificed far more than I could even imagine. And, you know, I thank each and every one of them. And they all know who they are. And I hope they understand that that's truly a heartfelt thing. We know it's going to be uh, tough for the next few months. Uh, Thank you for uh, continuing your due diligence at work and all of the people that work with you. Uh, We've been talking with Amy Arani from the Environmental Health Department here in Nevada County. Keep us safe. Thank you. Thank you. Next up on the KVMR Evening News, the Public News Service reports on groups demanding cancellation of federal student loan debt. Student and community groups will rally outside President-elect Joe Biden's Philadelphia headquarters on Monday to demand that he cancel all federal student debt on his first day in office. Organizers of the rally say Philadelphia was instrumental in securing Biden's victory at the polls, 
Now, after months of unemployment brought on by the pandemic, many have to choose between paying their debts or keeping a roof over their heads and food on the table. Lauren Horner with the PA Debt Collective says canceling student debt would relieve some of the burden on people who have gone months without paychecks. Philly residents have much higher debt loads, an average of over 37000 than many graduates in other major cities, especially our black and brown borrowers. Biden-backed legislation that would cancel the first $10,000 of federal student loan debt but has not supported a Democratic resolution urging him to eliminate more. That resolution, proposed by Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York, would cancel up to $50,000 of student debt per borrower. But Horner insists that still wouldn't be enough. To cancel all of the debt would be a much bigger and bolder statement, and it would keep $11.6 billion in the pockets of over 300,000 Philadelphia residents in particular. Nationally, 45 million Americans owe more than $1.5 trillion on student loans. Biden calls it questionable whether he'll have the executive power to cancel even $50,000 of student loan debt, but Horner insists Congress gave that authority to the Secretary of Education, a presidential appointee, decades ago. Basically, with a sign of a pen, the $1.5 trillion of federal student loans can be canceled. But we're simply demanding that Biden use his power that he already possesses to push this forward. She adds student debt is one factor contributing to the racial wealth gap and that canceling it would help reduce wealth inequality. For Public News Service, I'm Andrea Sears. That's going to do it for our newscast for this evening. The KVMR Evening News is produced by Paul Emery Audio. Coming up next, it's the California Report, and at 7 o'clock we bring you Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. I'm Felton Pruitt. Have a great weekend. Step by step, longest march can be won. Here's your chance to whet that John McCutcheon appetite of yours. This coming Wednesday, January 6th at 6 p.m., KVMR sustaining members are invited to catch up with John in advance of his virtual Left Coast Tour performance Saturday, January 9th. An ardent supporter of community radio, John McCutcheon offers this very special perk preview to other ardent supporters of community radio, our very own sustainers. If you're a sustaining member of KVMR, our Zoom series is just for you. And kicking off the new year is John McCutcheon, live just for you. Anybody can get tickets to his virtual Saturday show and KVMR fundraiser via stringsconcerts.com. But the special preview this Wednesday is free for sustainer eyes only. Sustainers will be emailed all the Zoom details. Find out more about sustaining members and John McCutcheon's Left Coast concert on our website, kvmr.org. <laughs>